Hi folks and good day. This is Bill Schaefer with my son Evan. Hello. And we're going to be talking about growth perspectives. A dad and son discussing the navigation through education and life. And wow. one of the, oh, I stepped on Evan. Go ahead, Evan. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just saying that's a mouthful. Yes, it is. And uh, I am going to bring a brain full to you along with Evan. And we want to start back in the early days when you were a small child. Now, Evan... Oh, God, it's immediately going to me. Great. Great. Okay, well, anyway, Evan's perspective and my perspective in the early life were different. I was an ADD kid and had um, my mother and father who were not really into education. And we... We got along very well. They were great parents. They were caring parents and loving parents. But because they were not in education, no one read to me. And that really affected what was to come in life for me. Now with Evan, I'm going to let him speak for himself or from his early education. And as I mentioned, I was an ADD kid. Um, and it was now, how diagnosed. did that manifest for you? How did it manifest for me? Well... I didn't understand it being a little kid. You don't understand many things. How old? Uh, when I first, well, when I was very or when young, did you realize it? When did you uh, notice when it? When did I realize it? <laughs> I think my mother realized it, but she had no expertise to realize it when I was into everything. Oh. I drove her crazy because I had a lot of energy. Of course, a lot of kids have, but I didn't have a, um, a long-term um, effect as far as concentrating on learning or concentrating on a task. Um, I always moved to the next thing very quickly and it basically drove her crazy, but she did not know how to correct that. And early on in my school years, um, I had the same issue with teachers and, uh, also being in an educational situation that was very strict and they were really geared towards the mainstream, um, students. So with Evan, I'm going to let him speak a little bit about his early days. Uh, with education, who is a, really a dichotomous uh, issue from mine. So, Ev, let me. Can I ask a couple yeah. questions? Okay. Yeah. When did you first realize or feel different than the other kids? Um, when I was reading to students at age five in preschool, mm. and the kids wanted me to read as opposed to the teacher. Yeah, and, and and I remember it. I do. I was young, but I remember that clearly. And I remember that clearly too. I know you did because they called you in. Well, yeah, the, and again, here's a teacher that did not understand that they had somebody that had great abilities, and they oh, were actually you. threatened by his ability to read. So, where I really had trouble reading because my parents didn't read to me, Evan had no problems reading. So you yeah, see, it came it came almost too easily, uh, but yeah. I, but I think it's because you and my mother fostered um, a sense of education and the necessity of informing yourself from an early age. So reading, just and and like just understanding knowledge was instilled in me very young mm. from the start, really. Well, I really credit your mother with that because to this day, I am not a reader. Yeah, I'm a scanner. Mm. Uh, and I, I... It's funny because I do that too sometimes. More well, but, times, actually. But you have read books. and you Yeah. Have, I, I am not a person that will sit and read a book because with my ADD, as I'm reading the book, all of a sudden I'm thinking about the next thing I have to do. And then I can't remember what I read. And that is so frustrating to me. So... If in my case, if I want to learn something, I get it. I scan the um, uh, the paragraph. I look at the pictures because being a, a young kid that didn't read, I was a big picture guy. But I kind of can. And you're a visual that. too. Yes, definitely a visual. And with um, with Evan, he did have the concentration. And one thing I have to mention at this point is Evan has. Um, a special characteristic of who he is. And that special characteristic is Asperger's. Asperger's to me is like with ADD, which is a special gift that people 
mm. could utilize if they use it right. And again, I saw how to get around my ADD. Evan has, and I can't speak for him, I'm going to let him speak about it. Sure. But Evan has utilized his Asperger's uh, to propel him. And the one thing I want to tell you is, you know, I've dealt with Asperger's uh, young adults in my classes, and I'll go, I'll go over some of my background with that. Yeah, we but, have to talk about that too. Yeah, well, yeah, but I want to make sure we concentrate on this issue here. Sure. Where people do, do not uh, understand Asperger's to a proper point now, but even worse, when Evan was young, he was just a problem child. Instead of taking that and moving that around, and let me tell you who was the first person that really ever did it. And it was really himself. He worked on this. And I don't think, and I'll, again, I'm going to speak for you. You don't really know what the Asperger was at that point. You just knew you were different. No, and in the mid-90s, I don't think many people really were focused on neurodivergence or um, Asperger syndrome or autism. Yeah. And yeah. if they were... It was psychiatrists who were studying in that field specifically. Um, I don't think it was, in fact, I know it was not very w widely spoken about, which is why no one understood it. Yep. I mean, well, we're talking what, 94, 95? Well, something and, like that. Again, when I was younger, and this was, we're going back to the 50s and 60s, right? And 70s, and even less understood. You were either a pencil protector nerd or a problem case in school. And I'm sure any kind of neurodiver neurodivergence or out of the norm, whatever you want to call it, special needs. I mean, that might not be the appropriate terminology, but in the 50s and 60s, you were either normal, and I just made air or quotes, or, or you were in a mental institution, in an asylum. Or in a special group in school. Right. Or or in a home. Well, Another let me, air quotes. Let me tell you my side of it. Because I couldn't read well, I was always in that special group, mm -hmm. sitting in the back of the room, in the side of the room. Basically segregated. Yeah. And you know, all of a sudden, boom, there was a label on you. And no one really helped. It was and just, no one understood either. You got that. You got I think that. There's, a, there's also a vast difference between what you and I experienced, and that's that when... You also never had a diagnosis. Right. Mine came in 1998 when I was diagnosed by Tony Rothstein. Mm -hmm. So that was a, an official diagnosis, and I'm glad it is there, although I think things have kind of adjusted and changed over the years. Um, I'm glad that there was one in case I ever have to, like, officially state to somebody that I was diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder and that's what it is. Yeah. But with you, I think it might have been more difficult because I do see in you at times this scattered brained type of attention deficit disorder. Mm -hmm. But you were never officially diagnosed. So what was that like for you? Because clearly, whether it was hyperactivity or not, that's the ADHD piece. Mm -hmm. Was that difficult to navigate? It, it not knowing that that was a thing? Well, it, 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 it's funny. We had all these students that were normalized and uh -huh. myself with the other kids that were not. And I knew that I was different. And, you know, when you're young and you're labeled as a problem, a lot of people don't want to deal with the problem. They Who want to was deal labeling with it was a problem? Well, my teachers. Oh. Um, you know, they would not... I mean, I had a, a, a variety of different re responses from teachers where they would ignore me or they would think I was a problem kid or one of the guys that I had uh, in eighth grade or seventh and eighth grade who put me in the special reading group. So I was not assisted because he spent it, he spent it, yeah, he spent all his time with the normalized students and we just had to sit there and read, which basically they were just putting us there so we wouldn't get in trouble mm. or, or be Disrupt. all over the place. Yep. So... You know, when you take well, there's a crossover because for years, I, as you know, was placed in the back of the class. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was happening in, I think, first. Uh, I think it was in kindergarten when you went to the one schoolhouse. School, and remember, you got on the table and danced because you were bored. 
I don't remember that. Yeah. Oh yeah, I um, remember all that. Maybe I put it out of my head. Yeah. But I no, I I remember at least the one example I can remember is in first grade, um, when the science teacher Mrs. Pope, what a name, um, put me back. Actually, it happened in the music class too. Mm-hmm. Um, where they it was basically what you're describing, um, as with what they did with the problem case kids or the ones that were differentiated somehow and um i can't remember exactly what the like inciting incident was where by she put me in the back but i was also isolated it was not Mm -hmm. me with others it was me by myself and that is when i think i realized there was something wrong but i kind of just what do you do as an eight-year-old kid well, I don't look you at do that, what the adults say. I don't look at that as something wrong. I look at that as showing a difference in the normal um, main street uh, learning. Yeah. But the one thing I have to say is, and she probably didn't realize this, she put you in the back of the room and gave you pencils yeah, to draw. so you could draw and write. Somewhere along the line, she knew... But she was diverting away from the, the, the curriculum, which was not really effective for me as a student because I wasn't learning what she was teaching. She wasn't. But what I'm saying is she realized that there was something wrong. Different. Right. Mm-hmm. But she wasn't trained to take you and say, okay, let's take these differences like drawing, mm-hmm. you know, and sit down with you and equate that to something that may bring you more on the mainstream. That happened to you over and over again in all these different classes for years. I also think in that particular environment at that particular time, um, these teachers were not learned how to um, handle, for lack of a better word, Mm. kids with differences like mine. Now, when you have education students in college when they're studying to be teachers Mm -hmm. they're taught about neurodivergence Mm -hmm. very widely but in the 90s these teachers that were that had their degrees from the 60s and 70s yep they was old school right it's old school exactly so they didn't know from anything and they probably were using their mindset their belief system and not really following with this like Ooh, newfangled autism, yeah, oh yeah. Asperger's. Ooh, what's that? Especially yeah. in the 90s. Yeah. Because I didn't know what it was until you and my mother told me yep. that I had that. Yeah. And I was well, like, oh, what's that? And, you know, I have to credit not so much me, but your mother, because she did realize that there was differences with you early on. Mm. She did get you interventions. I did not have that. And... In fact, yeah. do you remember when it began? Because I know the diagnosis was 98, but it had to have been prior to that. Well, that I, can, she was... I can remember when I first saw it. And, of course, I was not not attuned to it, you know. Uh, there's two things I noticed. When you were very young, you needed the stimulation where you used to twirl and mm. fall down all the time. And I thought, oh, that's really cute. And then after a while, I looked at it and I thought... Repeated behavior. Yeah, that's kind of strange. So he must be getting something from that. And I, I said to her one day, you know, I said, you know, I think maybe there's something physiological about maybe he has a balance problem. Mm. And then the other thing is when you would go to sleep at night, believe it or not, I don't know if you remember this, you used to stand on your head in the corner of your crib. No, I don't. Yeah. I and still do that. <laughs> I, maybe I do it in the day sleep. But anyway. I, I think you do it too. You just don't know it. <laughs> anyway, with... With those two things, well, I you know think... it's it's interesting though because you said the twirling. I can tell you what that is because if it was repeat, it was a repeated behavior. Mm-hmm. It's a self-soothing thing. That's exactly right. It's a stim, stimming. Yeah, yep. mm-hmm. and you know, I but I thought it was it was physiological. So interesting um, though that you would think that. So somewhere along the line, I think you went to your pediatrician and mm. your mother aunt, uh, asked him about it, and he said, "Well, maybe it'd be a good idea," and then. Probably a year after that, we were in um, a electronic store, and you had a propensity to uh, play piano because I had piano. So really? Just so you folks know, I'm an old musician, so I kind of brought him into we'll, the music. We'll talk phase. about the music stuff too, yeah. for sure. Yeah, because uh, so, I think that plays in here too. But go well, ahead. So what happened now is that um, 
we were in this electric uh, electronic store, and you know it was a typical place to sell uh, TVs and DVRs or RVs, whatever they they sold. But they had this really nice piano by the door, and I had to pick up something, and I said to Ev, "Hey, here's a piano." And Evan went right to the piano he was playing it. I could hear him playing it, so I went around the corner, and I, whatever I had to pick up, I was looking for it, and all of a sudden. I look out of the corner of my eye, I see this other kid go flying down the, <laughs> the aisle. And I was, I looked and I went, right away, I thought, uh-oh. So I ran down the aisle, and here's Evan still playing piano. And I said, did you do something to this kid? And he goes, he would not stop playing, and I want to play. So what he did was he did the only thing that he could do. He couldn't verbalize it, so he pushed the kid. All right, so then I, I realized that maybe there is something going on here. How spoke, old was um, I? You were probably, I want to say maybe eight years old, maybe a little bit, maybe oh, that's seven. when I was diagnosed. Yeah, and well, what happened was then your, I talked to your mother. Oh. And, and then she spoke to someone, I don't know who she spoke to, I don't remember. And she got this um, lady, her name was Janetta Burpee. And Janetta Burpee, after she evaluated Evan, realized that he had... A, um, a, a um, an adverse affection uh, affecting to someone he doesn't know touching him. Mm -hmm. So she put a lot of therapy, and I'm not going to go through a therapy, but no, it's okay. She, you can say it was she, a, it was occupational therapy. It was occupational therapy, and she would brush him. Which I was, did not like that. Oh yeah, well of course you didn't like it. To this day, I wouldn't like that. That was not a good thing. Mm -hmm. and he would come out of the the therapy section all red, but it did help him at that point. Okay, so getting back to the mainstream here, if you look at the different perspectives of where we came from, nobody brushed me, nobody did anything with me. And I'm going And you were school. unfortunately left to kind of fend for your own, like figuring things out and figuring things and out, auto adjusting yourself, so to speak. And, and navigating, mm, in a, navigating in a society yeah. that was not my, my proper na navigation. And, you know, over the years, I did things to. And it's the way I describe this is I have a bridge, but there's no superstructure. And I mm -hmm. got to be really careful not to step in the wrong place and have that bridge collapse. So there was a lot of anxiety on my part to get through, to navigate through. Now, again, with Evan, he had different navigation problems. And the common thing that I want to mention is we both had problems navigating through life. And mine was education, and or the lack of education, and I had to take it upon myself, as he just mentioned, to make headway, to, to make some kind of corrective action. And again, I did not have the supports, per se. I did have two teachers in school that really liked me. Who were and, they? Uh, it was, uh, first person was uh, Mr. Schwartz, who has passed away. He was my gym teacher, and he noticed that I was different and he would talk to me differently than the other students and kind of watch out for me and he kind of got me through my elementary days of school and then there was another gentleman who is still with us thank God who was my music teacher his name was Vince Mayola and Vince Mayola um, actually understood that I was a little bit on the different side uh, in high school I was in the shop program because again because I was not a reader or a studier I wound up in the shop program, which was all uh, mechanical and visual. Uh, but he coached me in music, and he knew that I had some talent. And I picked music up early on, believe it or not, because my mother didn't want me to do it, so I was determined <laughs> I was going to do it anyway. <laughs> of <laughs> so, course. Uh, so, Always going against yeah. what our parents want, right? Well, back those days, she thought I was going to be a reefer smoker and a, wow. a drinker. Oh, yeah, that's why she didn't want to do it. But my aunt encouraged me. She mm. saw something different. And she understood that I was a little bit different too. So anyway, getting back to the, um, the teachers, they helped me through. And then when You were I, lucky. Well, I was to a point, okay, because now I went to a high school which really didn't care about me. They were a high school that you went in and they pushed you out. Well, let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. Because... We can be more specific here, I think, and say it's the Philadelphia School District, mm -hmm. which to this day does the same thing. It's the same process. You bring kids in and they push them out. 
it's, but it's it's the it's all the inner city schools. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I'm not just saying Philly. I'm saying inner city schools in general. I think that process is kind of a given. Yeah. And yep. the sad part is that they're not really focused on kids with differences. Mm-hmm. And well, the, they and, are, they are. And now they are degree. more. Well, maybe more. more. But when I was there, they were not at all. No. Because it was out, it was so out of the norm, or it wasn't known that they weren't even like aware to be, right. or made to be aware of it. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of like, oh, that kid's different, so we're gonna do whatever, uh, right? And the reason was because I was different. I wasn't academically bound, right? You know, I didn't like again. You know, I'm not a reader. I'm not a studier. So when I went to the general courses like general math, uh, history, and different things. I liked history. That was something I really latched onto because there was visuals involved mm. with the, the the different wars and different things. But when we got to math, I was about as brain dead as an amoeba. So I went to the shops and you know, they didn't really care if I knew math or anything. You know, I was in the electrical program, put up an electrical box, screw a switch in, whatever you had to do, and nobody really cared what I did. And the students that I was in with were the same as me. They were not academically bound uh, or brown, brown, no. Inclined. Inclined or bound. They weren't going anywhere. Oh, I see what okay? you mean. Yeah. Now, I could tell you, I bet you that most of the students that I was in those classes with are dead, Other, whether they were in gangs or they took drugs. Really? They used to take drugs right in my classroom. And they, I don't know if the instructor knew it or not. They used to shoot up heroin in the back. And you and said you saw that. Yeah, it was that. terrible. So we were tossed away. crazy. So they pushed me out the door. So now I graduated from high school. I have no clue on what I have to do, what I need to do. And again, my parents were like, you got to get a job. So I'm looking for a job. The guidance counselor, though, bring that up. Well, that's just... Because that, that's an upset. important piece. Yeah. Well, so my parents pushed me to get a job. Now, in the meantime... I have no structure. I have no support. Mm. They threw me out the door. Now, before I graduated, I did take the SATs. I got a 720 in my SATs. And I remember my my guidance counselor, counselor looking at it and saying, there's something wrong here. And I'm, I'm just sitting there like a student. And he says, do you realize you got a 720? Oh, and for the listeners, okay. these were the days when the SAT was to 1600. Today it's 2400 because there's an extra piece. But Okay. So go ahead. Anyway, so you know, I thought I did well. He goes, "Bill, I think this is probably one of the worst SAT scores I've ever seen wow. in this school." Now, you want to talk about negative enforcement? Wow. Well, that's definitely, definitely some negative energy there, yeah. So the guy says to me, "I would just suggest that you get a job somewhere, take any job you can, and just try to, to do the best you can. What? Yep. And I just walked out of there, and I was I was defeated for a while. And my parents would tell me, just go get a job. We don't care what you do. Just get a job. So, you know, I go out, and, you know, I, didn't know, I really didn't know what to do. Um, I finally thanked God for my cousin. He gave me a little bit of, uh, of confidence. Uh, my cousin, who worked in a drugstore, said they're looking for a porter. <laughs> I was like, I don't even know what a porter is. So I go there and I take my, you know, myself down there and talk to the people. And they like me because I was a nice guy. I've always been a nice person. And I get hired. <clears throat> Realize that my job is to clean the, the, uh, the bathrooms, sweep oh. the floor, <clears throat> excuse me, and just keep the stock going. And I did that for a while. And I started building up my confidence. And I worked in Center City in Philadelphia. And I kind of learned to negotiate my way around the city. And it really helped me out a lot. And then my job ended. And I worked in retail for a while. And banged around. Didn't know what to do. And then um, I was hired. um, And I was way over my head when I took this job. I was hired for a supervisor in a uh, medical firm. And I thought, well, you know what? I've always been a person that has not been afraid to do things, so let me do it. And um, one of the things that also happened, let me back up from it, because I missed sure. a big part of what happened to me. Um, now, keep in mind the medical firm. But 
all my friends who were academically suited for college because they were in the music program with me but I was probably the only one that was in the shop program all moved on to college they took their SATs they did well and now I'm lost I'm kind of walking around in a daze and as I said I worked retail for a while and then I got to a point where I was like I can't do this anymore I have to make a change so I go back to my parents and I said I can't work for maybe a year is that okay with you and they came back and said yeah you can stay here forever if you want because they were the the nicest people you've ever met but again they weren't academically inclined and they were I guess dumbfounded that I wanted to, to do what I want to do at this point and that was go to the free library of Philadelphia and I went there every day five days a week for about six months and <clears throat> because I knew Philadelphia because I worked down there I knew where it was mm -hmm. so I go down there the first day and you know it was kind of cool because again my friends took me there because we used to go down and listen to the music down there because they had a humongous uh, music section so I knew where Still things do. were yeah and, and I went there and the first thing I grabbed was American history because I liked American history I figured I'd start there so I'm looking at it and I really enjoy it and then I left that day next day I go back I said okay I gotta do something hard now let me get math <sighs> that was a scary thing for me so I open up the book <clears throat> and I'm looking and I'm starting to, to go to the very basics like kindergarten math and I started <laughs> to, to study it right went down with my books and wrote things down and studied so anyway I went down there I guess for about a week <clears throat> and I was studying um, actually I was studying math yet and I have this old guy come over to me he looked like a vagrant or a street person and he goes to me hey and I I looked at him I thought oh god this guy's gonna ask me for money I said yes can I help you with something and he goes you come here every day right and I said yes I do um, he said how come you come here don't you go to school I said no I said I'm trying to study to better myself oh, oh you look like a nice kid and he turned around and he walked away and I thought that was a weird encounter and he didn't ask me for money or anything so I'm sitting there this and suddenly became an audiobook <laughs> <laughs> yeah but anyway let's sit here and studying and he comes back to me again he goes can I ask you something I said yeah sure he said can you come with me for a minute I thought oh great this is not going to be good but being a nice guy who was I said yeah Leads sure you out to the I said, alley yeah I thought he was going to take me out somewhere and do something to me so anyway I get up and he walks me through this um, uh, maze of, of desks and, and chairs where people sat at and studied and he takes me over to a group of people that were like the average age was probably like 70 or 75 and I walk over and he goes I want to introduce you to this gentleman here and he you know I'm staying there and he goes this is what was your name <laughs> and I said my name was Bill and he goes this is Bill he says this is professor and he goes through all the different professors he goes these are a bunch of old farts they're retired and they come here we meet here almost every day because we hang out together and learn things I, I said that's great at your age you learn things he goes you never stop learning amen so I'm starting to really like this guy and I said what what did you teach he goes physics and mathematics he said I saw you looking at that math book I said yeah wow I said um, yes I said I'm really trying to better myself and that's why I come here as much as I do mm. he goes son we're gonna be your tutors and I stood there for a minute and I got the chills I was like you know I was scared and I was impressed and I was honored all at the same time that so, was almost like your your intention manifesting itself too it, yeah it was and that was a major turning point because these people wanted to give back and I'm a true believer and when you die everything stays behind and just remember I'm going to say this now I became a teacher and we'll discuss that later on but I sat down with these people and they were the kindest gentlest people that you would ever meet and they took me by the hand and took me through the courses 
and they would save me, like this gentleman that walked over to me. Let me teach you a little about physics and Newton's law. And he would draw things out so visually mm. I could see it. He said to me right off the bat, you're a visual learner, right? I said, yeah. He goes, all right, we'll take care of that. Uncommon so, in those days to use well, that terminology. I dealt with probably five or six hundred years of educational people. These people were, oh, my God. So anyway, and they're all passed away now. I'm sure they were, you know, 70. But look at the affect that they had on your life. Oh, that was a big, big turning point. I bet. That somebody took me and made up for all the years that somebody pushed me away. So I studied with them. Because suddenly you weren't disposable. You were someone who was trying to accomplish something. Yep. They saw that I had potential. Now, let me just stop for a second and just tell you something. No, I just, let me tell you something. One of the things I found out in my life, and I tell my students this because, again, I am a teacher, that everyone, I don't care who you are, is a genius. You just haven't found it yet. Mm. Now, remember I said that. So, am I a genius now? You know, I'm always humble, and I don't say I'm a genius. I'm good at a lot of stuff. But maybe I'm a genius, but I never want to think that because that would just ruin who I am. You know, I'm always trying to strive and help people and do the right thing. So well, It's kind of like if you were to ask Einstein if you were still alive, are you a genius? I don't know if he would necessarily say yes. Yeah, I'm sure he would come up with some kind of statement where he would go, boop, you know. So, but of course he was. <clears throat> I think as an outsider, it's easier to view people for what they truly are than what we ourselves yep. Can, yep. can kind of impress upon our own um, mentality. Well, and the thing is, like with Einstein, like many people that are different, um, you know, Einstein used to put two odd shoes on and go to work and act, you know, like... Well, they said um, they say he was neurodivergent as well. Yeah, so, yeah. But because he had the gift that he had, he was able to... I mean, think about this, that he was able to figure things out without the things that we have today that allow us to make next steps in progress. So just to finish my original uh, thought here, I went and retook my SATs. And when I retook my SATs, I got a 1460 on the SATs. And I can't say it was just my own brain power. It was what these people showed me. Mm. And going there, going to, to with those people just really infused so much understanding uh, of what it takes for education, um, I decided that, yep, I am going to go and I am going to take a college uh, course and I'm going to get my degree. I was, I was dead set to do that. So that was like, that was really what set that in motion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I knew I, I wanted to go to college like my other friends, right. but I just didn't have the tools to do it. Mm-hmm. And Or yeah. the test scores necessarily. Yep. That so, probably really initially probably deadened your like you probably thought oh this is over yeah some people just give up i think something inside me that didn't let me give up which i mean that's a testament to you yeah that would be for absolute certain because i think so many people even in today's world if they were to get a 720 or what the equivalent would be on a on the sat or act now they would probably just throw the hat in and be like mm-hmm. okay well you know what I, i'm probably just destined for mcdonald's the rest of my well, life there's nothing wrong with mcdonald's some people no. lose that no no but I, I mean you know you set the bar higher if and, that's really what you're yeah. good at flipping burgers go for it but, but i think set so bar, many people right okay if you set the bar high and only make half of that it's a lot better than setting half of that and making the bar much lower. At least set some intention. I think there's maybe a varying degree of intention for people who don't have direction. Yeah. But I think, um, you know, if McDonald's is what you start out with, great. But it, I think most people it, it at least should have some kind of goal for themselves. And, yep. and it seemed like you did from the get-go, at least from that inciting incident point well, where you one, got a bad SAT One thing that, that prompted me, and what I think it's intrinsic in me, is my dad. Um, not going too deep into his, his background, but talk about in the Second second. World War, um, he was, he was uh, profoundly wounded, and he looked like he had a stroke. And my father functioned almost normally as an unimpaired uh, person 
for 38 years, he worked in a factory. And he would go to work every day, not miss any time, unless it was impossible to get there, like with a snowstorm or something. Didn't you tell me once he only missed, like, one day of work, and he was so apologetic yeah. about it? Well, he was he was that kind of a guy. So I think my determination came from him. Absolutely. And after I, I took my SATs again, and, you know, I was ready for college, um, I had to look for a college that I felt comfortable with. I didn't want a large college where I would get lost in the crowd. And I found this private college that was actually founded by Benjamin Franklin, believe it or not. It was called Spring Garden College. Very small college. And my first semester there, I was brain dead because I was thrown things that I studied, but I didn't have the um, the background of the education, the uh, execution for like a research paper. So the first research paper I handed in was handwritten. I didn't have a typewriter. Mm. And luckily the professor was cool. He said to me, you know, I looked at your transcripts and I noticed that you came from a, um, a city high school and you were in a shop course. And I, I understand that. So being in a small college and people now understood where I came from allowed me to uh, execute my education very basically successfully. And then what I did was I stayed in that course and I took one of the hardest courses I could think. It was biochemistry and stayed in that course for two years, got my associate degree and increased my GPA every year because I started to understand it. And I had friends that were like me, but they had the academic prowess to help me out. Once I got to my associate degree, one of the professors that were there said, you know, Bill, I had you for a statistical analysis course. Why don't you look at business? I think because you got a personality. Why don't you join us over in the business um, uh, section and check that out? So I went over and my first course, of course, was business law, which I was ready to shoot myself because it was like, oh, my God, how do you understand this stuff? And economics with the laws of elasticity. Oh, but because I had the tenacity to, to learn now. I got through that course. Now, when I first went to college, I had a 1.5, uh, no, I'm sorry, a 1.2 QM, which is like... Did they put I, you on academic probation? Yes, I was on academic probation, and they explained to me, you know, what I needed to do. And when we jumped to when I graduated, I could, when I graduated from Spring Garden, it would, I graduated with a, with a 3.85. Wow. Okay. And also, I got um, I, I got an award for being first in my class. Oh, you were summa cum laude. Well, it was a little different because it was a private small college. You could say that it was more. I was first. Well, in my were class. you valedictorian? No, I was not valedictorian oh. because there was engineering and different ones. They oh, handled oh. that differently for your, your. But for my business curriculum that I was in, mm. I got I got that. But enough about gotcha. it. But anyway, no. It's, so it's just fun. showing you that you have a choice early on in life. Uh, you have a choice when you're a child um, to try to, to ask for help. Many children don't ask for help. They don't know how to ask for help. And a lot of them are downtrod because somebody has said something that really hurt them. And they don't m make a move for that. And because I guess the tenacity I got from my dad, you know, I stuck with things. And it was kind of cool. Um, so I don't know where I got my tenacity from because I think... It was partially learned, maybe, just from seeing you and my mother and how you were as mm -hmm. people. Um, but I'm just, I almost wonder, too, how that became so ingrained in. Because I always, as much as I didn't struggle as much as you did academically, I definitely, those early school years were difficult just to kind of make a, a leeway through yeah. because of all of the other bullshit that was going on socially and otherwise it, it was kind of like this constant barrage of issues so well, to speak and what, ha what happens a lot of times is you get clouded by issues and you don't see the 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 forest you just see the trees in the forest yeah the, the what's right in front of you one of the things that i go back and speak about something that I think you had the tenacity from wherever you got it. Early on when you were, um, uh, I think, let me think for a minute, 
when you were in the private school. Okay. Well, there were a yeah, couple. There was the, the schoolhouse. Chest Chestnut Hill. Oh, Chestnut Hill. The, okay. That was that's kids, first grade for me. The kids used to used to tease Evan, and these were very very smart, well-to-do kids. <clears throat> and not just that, but very socially aware. Right. And here's Evan, who's very geeky and shy and quiet. And I don't know if there was the diagnosis yet, so I'm I'm only not including that because yeah. I don't remember if that had happened. I don't know. I don't know. But here's something that you took upon yourself. What's that? I remember this. Kids used to, to tease him about his physical appearance. Oh, yeah. And, I forgot and, about this. Yep. Oh, I didn't forget about that. No, I and, forgot to mention it. Yep. Go and, ahead. Well, I think it's important you to You can kind of that. case it. Yep. And what happened was Pete, the kids would say, hey, look at the ears on that kid. Because Evan, like a lot of children, have ears that protrude. It's just not... I mean, when you look at a lot of the kids, they do have that. And it, To be quite frank, though, over the years, I haven't seen that many. But I've seen some. I have. Okay. I was in tune to that. And Evan actually came to his mother and said, can you do something about my ears? Oh, I came home crying. Yep. I remember yeah. it. And, and he's uh, probably had... I mean, it happened to you multiple times. And probably there was a tighter point where you were like, I got to make a change. The, the real it. tighter point was being chased by kids my own age across this private school campus for something that I could not change. Yep. And that's horrifying. Yep. What child at that age, first grade, seven or eight years old, who has to deal with that? Why should they have to deal with that? And one of the things that I saw there with Evan was there was a brilliance to himself where he said to us, I need to have my ears changed. Mm-hmm. Well, because they did stick out. And obviously, I mean, as an adult now, I can look back at pictures and say, wow, that really, it's almost like a different person physically because after the surgery, otoplasty, for those interested. <laughs> um, yeah. It was unusual, I think, in that time for a child to have major plastic surgery to change a physical appearance, but I just couldn't take it anymore. That's what it really came down to, and I yeah, think... You reached the wall. Oh, it was... It was it was a wall, and I knocked it down mm -hmm. because I was done. Yeah. And it was not that I was done because I wasn't able to handle it. It's because I didn't... I didn't want to. Yeah. I didn't want to hear that every day about something that I could not change. Mm -hmm. And I think something else that we should discuss here, which is important just in terms of education and life and kind of the, the modern landscape from the time I we're talking about here to now is bullying mm -hmm. oh, yeah. and how that affects students and, and their growth and their um, understanding of the world. It really inhibited me for a period of time. And I got bullied as well. What were you bullied for? I was bullied because um, I I couldn't um, perform in a classroom and, and kids picked that up. Mm. And that took itself to like the ball field. I was always chosen last because I wasn't part of really? that academic group, you know, the in guys. Uh, so that, that was a bullying in itself, but it was a very quiet bully. Was somebody coming over punching That's me out? That's the worst kind. Mm-hmm. Yep. That is the worst kind, because when it's quiet, no one knows. That's right. And the teachers didn't know. Of course they wouldn't. Yeah. I was a little but it affects yeah. you yeah. the worst of all, yep. because no one else is going to hear it. But when they're whispering in your ear, oh, yep. you're not going to you know, level up to anyone else. Yeah. You're not going to be like the rest of us. <laughs> you and, know, and they again, all chuckle to themselves. We that come kind of from stuff. different places, but there's, there's similarities to oh, our lives. Uh, and there's yeah. cro there's always going to be crossovers, I think, um, with stories like ours because mm -hmm. it's, um, you know how the movie The Breakfast Club, mm -hmm. obviously made in the eighties, but that movie is timeless because yeah. of what it talks about, the issues that are in there. You know the yeah. the geeks, the jocks, the the bullying, the and cool they don't kids. get along, but they are in the same situation now, and yeah, they're true. forced to mm -hmm. figure out what makes them come together and become united a un yeah a unit yep um and i think that's that's actually a very important movie for that reason alone because not only is it an academic setting but it shows how people that are very disparate yep can actually be very common 
once they come together and talk. Yeah. But you hear about all this bullying and stuff and, you know, especially now with cyberbullying and um, it's gotten really bad yeah. because people get online, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, X or yeah. um, um, TikTok. I mean, I see it all over the place and it's really like it bothers me, but it's unfortunate because I don't think anyone can really do anything about it. It's freedom of speech. And the sad truth is people can say whatever the hell they want online and not really have any kind of ramifications, well, but think... it affects people deeply. But, you know, it's like anything else. And I'm a true believer in this. I grew up in a society and even with my own family, they were very prejudicial. They didn't like anybody and that w rubbed off on me and now um i i did two things in my life i said to my father i would never go in the, in the service because he said to me i don't want you to be wounded like me which um you know i did i did do but i did it my own way what i had to do and we'll discuss that in another podcast and the other thing um was you know just the way that life dealt its its blows to me and i got through it Evan mm. was the same way very and true let me just say something and i, th I think we're going to be closing this in a few minutes mm -hmm. but you know there's three issues here one is the one we're speaking about right now is there a broken brain and how do you get around it how do you fix it and a lot of times you have to do it yourself um some people are fortunate like i i had the old people the professors that helped me out uh, some people never get that and I'm a teacher but I'm a teacher and remember I'm going to say this I'm a facilitator of learning I make people that have a broken brain or no confidence in themselves function differently to change their lives and that's going to be one of the um, uh, I want to say podcasts but it could be a learning uh, series that we do that is taking what I teach which is electrical and giving people the ability to not flounder but to be able to take a job interview with some uh, basic learning not to be a specialist but basic learning to, to tell them what things are so they can take a good job interview or maybe go to a tech school I'm a true believer college is great I've been in tech schools I taught in tech schools and I've gone to college and taught in college and there's a place for everybody but some people just are not geared towards college yeah some people are not built for it right and some people are the visual learners and the people that should be in a, a technical situation and I'm going to help you uh, realize that uh, in the upcoming um, electrical uh, series and wasn't that a great plug you like oh i'm giving you i'm going to give you one more <laughs> plug one of the things that again i mentioned things uh, some issues about prejudicial and in today's life the way society's gone i'm not real happy with society today and and there's a multitude of things that i want to discuss to help change things and in fact can i just interject on that real yep. quick because there was a thought that i had attached to it Go ahead. i also I'm a little disillusioned by how society is as well. And I see it and I hear it on um, platforms like TikTok, particularly because um, I think it's becoming increasingly obvious that younger kids, we're talking like maybe 12, 13 to 17, 18, you know, basically high school age or late middle school to high school. And I see and hear these kids that are watching these social media stars in particular on, on TikTok that are getting famous because they're like blown up overnight. Mm -hmm. And the sad truth is, is that they think they can be that, but then they become so discouraged with life in general because they realize that they can't be that or they will never be that. And they're kind of leveling themselves up in their mind to be this thing, but they're never going to be that just because it doesn't happen for everybody. Yet and, they become, they become disillusioned. Now it's my turn to make a comment on that sure. because I have a student right now that is in my class that really doesn't perform anything at all. He, he exists in my class. And I said to him one day, what do you want to be? 
He goes, I'm going to be a football player. I said, well, you know, that's a great thing because I used to work for a football team and there were some really great people that made a lot of money. I said, but what happens, number one, if you don't make it? And number two, if you do make it and you get hurt, what's your backup plan? And there's so many people today that when uh, it happens, what Evan said, they, they become digital disillusioned and they give up. You have no backup plan. It also spurs on mental illness yeah. issues. Yeah. Like if, if we're dealing with individuals that maybe are already kind of um, pre-existing issues like depression, anxiety, um, whether they're diagnosed or not. Um, I think we've we've kind of reached a point in, in society where we've got um, 30 million Americans, I believe is the statistic, that have active diagnosed cases of depression. Mm. I mean, that the, that yeah. number is staggering. And and people will take advantage of that all the time. One of the things that people I will say, also say it's not real and it's yeah. very real. It's clinical. They'll try to ignore it or whatever, but. You know, I don't want to belabor a lot of things here. So I'm going to tell you that we will have another uh, a series that deals with society. And I'm going to bring issues that I have uh, to it. And as time goes on, we're going to ask for feedback from our listeners. Absolutely. And this feedback, we will view it and we will discuss it and hopefully be able to help a lot of people out there. My main quest of life, just to close my pod, my part of it, is... Your pod. Whatever my my issues are here. Are you series, living in a pod? Whatever I'm doing. Is it a pea pod? Oh, here we go. Go ahead. Uh, anyway, uh, <clears throat> one of my issues is when you die, you don't take a thing with you. But you can have disciples and you could change society. And so many people are not doing that. When I was growing up, you know, as a young man in the 80s, everything started to turn me, 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 and how much money can I make, and how can I be successful? And the way that people did that really affected where we are today. Mm. So these three issues, the electrical training, the broken brain issue, and the societal issue, I want to deal with that and try to help people out to leave things um, so the, the life of life that I leave behind is a better, legacy is better. All and right? I think also just to, to say this, um, for the sake of being politically correct, broken brain is not a physically broken brain. We're using that as a metaphor. Mm -hmm. So just explain briefly what you mean by broken well, brain. I have to correct something. It could be physical or, or it could be mental. And what happens with the broken brain? Like with my dad. My dad had a broken brain. He overcame physical. Well, that was, a, that was an actual physical thing. Yeah, so you have broken brains that are physical, but then on the mental side, you have people in depression, people that don't know what to right, do. Right, like a stopgap. To, to get them out of that depressionary stage. You know, baby steps. And we're going to be talking about that later on, all right? So, anyway, that's it for me. We're, and you are? Oh, who am I? <laughs> I'm Bill Schaefer. And I'm Evan Schaefer. And we will see you again soon. You take care of yourselves, and thanks for hanging in with us. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.